Descript is a software product for editing podcasts and video. Descript is a deceptively powerful tool, and its software architecture includes novel usage of transcription APIs, text-to-speech, speech-to-text, and other domain-specific machine learning applications. Some of the most popular podcasts and YouTube channels use Descript as their editing tool because it provides a set of features that is not found in other editing tools, such as Adobe Premiere or a digital audio workstation. Descript is an example of the downstream impact of machine learning tools becoming more accessible. Even though Descript only has a small team of machine learning engineers, these engineers are extremely productive due to the combination of APIs, cloud computing, and frameworks like TensorFlow. Descript was founded by Andrew Mason, who also founded Groupon and Detour. And Andrew joins the show to describe the technology behind Descript, as well as the story for how it was built. It's a remarkable story, actually. And there's some creative entrepreneurship. There's numerous takeaways for both engineers and business founders. And honestly, my favorite part is the fact that Groupon, which is Andrew's first extremely successful company, was born out of a product that was not working. And the same thing kind of happened with Descript. Andrew had been working on a company called Detour, and for many years he was trying to make it work, and eventually through having his back against the wall with the product not working as well and as popularly as he had planned, he found adjacent problems, and that turned into Descript, which is an amazing product. So I really like this story as an example of how innovation actually works in practice because it can be very, very messy. Andrew Mason, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. It's 2020. We've had podcasts for more than 15 years. Describe the state of podcast tooling. Well, you have to go a little bit further back because the truth is that podcast tooling is mostly just music production tooling. So back in the 90s, you started to see tools like Pro Tools taking nonlinear audio editing off of tape machines and onto the computer. And nothing has changed too much since then. I mean, everything's gotten better. There's many different options if you're making a podcast, you're using timeline-based editors with waveforms as an abstraction, such as Pro Tools or Adobe Audition, or you know maybe GarageBand or Audacity. And there's a high learning curve, powerful, flexible tools, but not really within reach of, of the normal person. So the way Descript came along is that we were working on a audio tour platform called Detour, And we were basically making these long form podcasts and just saw what a tedious workflow it was for these audio producers. So this was at about the same time that speech to text was reaching an inflection point where it was actually accurate enough to be usable. And we thought, wouldn't it be cool if you could just automatically transcribe audio and then build a audio editing tool or a podcast editing tool that was really designed with narrative-based content in mind and not just trying to repurpose these tools that were designed with music in mind and allow people to edit audio by editing 
text the same way they would in a word processor. So that's what we're doing with Descript. I can think of a few main types of podcasts. You have the two-person interview format, which we're engaged in right now. You also have the This American Lifestyle podcast with some emotional narrative that is going concurrently with music. What are the other important podcaster use cases that you want to accommodate in building a podcast editing tool? Well, the main thing that we are trying to accommodate is the editing process. So if you're just doing something that's totally unscripted, where you're just letting the tape roll for two hours and you don't feel the need to edit, edit any of that, you want it to come out exactly as it is, then the tools that are already out there do that sort of thing pretty well. I mean, you, you can just use tools that ship on your computer for that. But if you want to craft your content in any way, if you, if you want the ability to edit and make things sound better, that's the space that we're playing in. And like you said, that, that applies to both unscripted content, like this conversation that we're having, as well as scripted content, like a This American Life episode or so all of the above. So as you said, Descript can take audio files and then transcribe them and then allow you to edit them as a text document. And this requires at least two technologies that I can think of, two machine learning technologies. You've got speech-to-text, and you also have the audio-text alignment. How good is the quality of those algorithms today? Very good. So if we were to transcribe this conversation that we're having right now, there'd be very few errors. The word error rate might be 2% or definitely less than 5%. In fact, you would probably be more distracted by punctuation errors than the actual word accuracy. As the quality of the recording starts to you know, diverge from this broadcast quality or people with heavy accents, then the quality can still, word error rate can still be as high as 30%. But increasingly, you know, if for just your general podcast, the transcription is incredibly accurate. The forced alignment process that we use is doing a kind of phonetic mapping of the text to the audio and giving us timestamps at the beginning and end of every phoneme. And that's incredibly accurate as well. Accurate enough that like further improving the accuracy of those word boundaries hasn't really been a major area of focus for us. You do also have this facet of the system that if I want a transcription that has a higher degree of reliability, I can key it off to a white glove human editor so what are the circumstances where I would want to do that? What are the circumstances where a human editor is going to catch things or edit things that are more fine-grained than what the automatic transcription can? I think there's two categories. One is, like I said, when, the, when you have a strong accent or when the audio quality is lower. So if you just have an iPhone that you have on a table in a crowded restaurant and you're recording a conversation, the transcription accuracy gets low enough that somebody's going to need to go through and clean it up for it to really be useful. The other situation is just like you work at an organization that has a budget for human transcription. And even 
2% error rate is something that you don't need to bother with. So you'd rather have it transcribed. We see both of those. Descript is a desktop application. Can you give me the brief overview of the stack of technologies that go into it? Sure. So back in maybe 2015 or so, when we started working on Descript and we were incubating it inside of Detour, this audio tour company that I mentioned, it was a native Mac application and written first in Objective-C and then in Swift. And then once we spun it out to to be a standalone company and and launched, surprise, surprise, some of the first feedback we got was from users requesting a Windows version of the app. This was, I think, 2018. And in that brief period of time, it felt like the landscape had really changed. And we were kind of on the cusp of the point where we're building this in a full web technology stack was viable. We've obviously seen this transition happen to different categories of tools, starting with CRM and documents and spreadsheets and and now, you know, design tools like Figma. But we were very cautious about doing it for an audio video production tool because of the requirements of processor intensive audio video editing, the size of the files that we're dealing with. There were just a lot of things about it that made us nervous. But at that point, we looked at what was out there and we felt like the benefits of using a web technology stack outweighed the costs. So Descript is built in React and the desktop application runs in Electron. And then we have like parts of our, our media engine that are native and it runs offline. So just have, being able to run it in Electron has allowed us to make this possible in a way that, that we couldn't have in, in purely a browser, at least not yet. There are some elements of the machine learning stack that can be in the cloud. There are some elements that can be or that need to be local. What are the the models or the machine learning systems that you need to keep locally, and what are the ones that are fine to be in the cloud? Well, we don't have our own transcription engine. That just seemed like the kind of thing that there's a bunch of really big companies with really smart people where it's a core strategic focus to be good at speech to text. And so rather than try to compete with them as a small startup, we would just continuously survey the field of options out there and use whatever we thought was the most accurate and the best experience for our customers. So that, as a result, is all in the cloud. We have our own alignment process, and we do that both in the cloud and locally, depending. So in addition to the initial alignment when we've transcribed a file, Whenever you're correcting a transcript, we'll actually realign the seconds around that correction to make sure that the audio and text remains aligned. And it's important for us to have that work offline so that as much of the experience can work offline as possible. So we do that locally. A lot of the new overdub text-to-speech stuff that we're doing is in the cloud. Are there any particularly annoying bugs that come to mind that you've solved that might illustrate the difficulties of working with audio? I think part of it is we have a design paradigm, the the document that encourages people to 
use the tool creatively and, and push its limits. So as soon as we launched, we saw people, you know, creating these documents that were, or, or that are, you know, timelines that are five or 10 hours long with incredibly large assets and thousands of edits and crossfades and, and, and so on. So it just got pushed to its limits very quickly. And it took us some time to just catch up with the way in which people were using it and make sure that that all worked with, with audio and video. There's a long list of things like that. And with such an open-ended application, what's your process for testing it? So we do a lot of internal testing, and then we have some manual QA. We have some automated QA as well, but we haven't found that to be quite as useful as just the automated QA that we do because the manual QA, because it is so open-ended and and often our customers are using it in ways that are difficult to replicate with automatic t- test cases. We also have a a pretty active beta user community who get early access to early versions of the app and are really good about logging reproducible bug reports for us. In 2018, you acquired Lyrebird, which has this technology that allows you to train an audio model and create new audio. And I remember when Lyrebird first launched with their demos, and it kind of was scary, but also exciting. It's incredibly useful, potentially, but it's also potentially dangerous. Why did Lyrebird decide to sell their product instead of trying to productize it themselves? So the Lyrebird team is a team of AI researchers that worked in Yoshua Bengio's lab up in the University of Montreal, who are just incredibly smart PhD researchers and are doing, I think, the the best work I've seen of anyone out there in making a easy to reproduce voice model of, of yourself. We had had our eyes on that space really since the beginning of Descript. But, you know, the stuff that we know how to do is build product and product engineering, build a business. We don't know anything really about the kind of deep learning stuff that those guys were doing. So when we started talking to each other, we realized that we had a a similar vision and a skill set that really complemented each other. And so we decided to join forces. And it's really been, you know, of all the acquisitions I've done in my career, perhaps the the most hand-in-glove fit between two teams. Describe how the Lyrebird technology is used in Descript. Increasingly, it'll just be scattered throughout we have a few things that Lyrebird has built that are in production now, like AI speaker detection that's just automatically labeling speakers in a, in a mono file that you transcribe. The big thing that we'll be launching is Overdub, and, and that'll be launching soon. It's in beta right now. That'll let you upload about 10 minutes of your voice. And from that, we can give you a text-to-speech model that you can use to generate audio. So the text-to-speech application, this is one of these ideas that, that could be you know, potentially dangerous, but I know you have a, a limitation on it where you can only use it on your own voice. How do you enforce that? It's pretty simple. And you know, Lyrebird used a similar mechanism when they were an independent company and successfully trained three or 400,000 voices without any cases of fraud. All you do is you give people a script that they have to read, and then you validate 
the transcript of what they read mm. against the original script. And so unless you can fool someone into reading a 10-minute <laughs> script, you can't really fake it. Describe some of the other subtle uses of machine learning in Descript. So one of the other ones that we're rolling out now is disfluency detection. Already in the app are um and ah uh detection. So if you say um or ah, uh, we have a kind of one-click button you can use to zap all of those. We're doing something similar now that'll catch contextual filler words like like or you know. It'll also catch stutters and false starts so that you can easily clean up your, your audio. And we're looking to offer more tools around like that, around mixing and, and leveling your audio, noise reduction and room tone detection. There's really an endless list of the types of things that we could, we could be adding. It's ripe for, for tools that are enabled by machine learning. So something like AI-powered compressor or EQ, people have subjective opinions on the what a compressor or an EQ should be on a podcast. Like if you listen to Joe Rogan, it's going to be mixed a little bit differently than NPR. Is that important? Does it, you know, is it hard to find the right granularity of which to give people? Is it something like the Instagram filters where you just want to give people some sane defaults that make things sound nice that they can sample? Yeah, the cool thing about Descript, I mean, we have compressor effects and EQ effects just built into the app. So when we think about applying machine learning, it's not a destructive process. It's really just tweaking parameters that are that are in the app. And then while it's true that there's some subjectivity and taste involved in how someone might mix something, I think that's true for the vast majority of people just want something that sounds professional and good. And, you know, the subtleties of different compressors aren't really of interest to them. So if we can do something that gets it to a general place that things sound good and then the user can continue to tweak from there, we think that's a pretty good option. How does the domain of video editing compare to that of audio editing? That's an interesting question. My experience is mostly in audio. I went to school in music technology. I worked in a recording studio for a couple of years. And then at Detour, we were working very closely with radio producers and got a firsthand view at their at their workflow and what worked well about it and what didn't. Like most people, I've done some video editing, but before joining Descript, but have really had to get myself up to speed with the workflows and the way people work. I think when you look at the video editing tools and the audio editing tools, there's a lot of similarities, but there are some differences. Some of those differences are like for example, the way that you set the in and out point for a range selection appear to largely be path dependency and just convention that one tool started one way and another a different way and everybody got used to it that's in that field. Others are legitimately different. So, you know, for video editors tend to apply effects on the clip level primarily, while audio editors tend to apply them on the track level. 
And that's for like legitimate use case reasons and the nature of how, what kinds of effects you're putting on video versus audio. So we've been kind of looking at that and working through the differences and trying to come up with something that works for both. I will say that I think the primary dividing point between for media editing tools should be whether it's narrative or music. That to me seems like a more natural division than audio or video. And the fact that they're divided that way is more, you know, just circumstances of history. But if you were building something from scratch today, I think you would probably divide things more along the lines of music versus narrative. Given that you studied music production, music technology, and now you're working on an audio editing tool. I did a show with Splice and one with a company that was similar to Splice, these online music collaboration platforms. I've always found it curious that music, there has not really been a GitHub-like experience for music. There has not been mass collaboration on music. Do you have any perspective for why that is? Haven't people tried to do it? I thought like Splice and Gobbler exactly. or there. Exactly. So they tried to do it. Splice tried to do it. And they basically pivoted to being a cloud sample library, which they're having a lot of success with. But people just didn't want to collaborate. I mean, I don't know if that's the problem or the problem is that it was, I never tried to use it. So I'm seriously just speculating here. But the other way to think of it is that it was kind of bolted on non-first class feature for the software platforms. And I mean, if you just, just to take an example, like if you look at the way Adobe has added collaborative tooling to their suite of products, it feels like Illustrator. If you compare the way it works with Illustrator to the way that it works, like a tool like Figma has treated collaboration, you know, Figma has reimagined everything from the ground up with collaboration, collaborative workflows as a first-class citizen. And it's worked wonders for them and, and really given them a, a major superpower. And I think a, a lot of these music editing tools, whether it's Pro Tools or Ableton Live or Logic or any of them, have not made the decision to rethink what they're doing as a collaborative tool. And all of these timeline editors are so feature rich, like they've all been around for 10 or 20 years, just adding feature upon feature upon feature. And if you're making music, if you're in a creative workflow, you want to have access to that stuff a lot of the time. So, so the idea of switching to a startup that's building a collaborative timeline editor it's a big trade-off, right? It's going to take a long time before somebody starting from scratch on a music production tool can reach the kind of minimum feature set that is going to allow someone to say, yeah, I'll use this instead of Ableton Live. And I don't feel in any way restricted in terms of what I can do creatively. Collaboration is a first-class citizen in Descript. What are the implications of that? So I think about the complexities of Google Docs you have two people editing concurrently. You can have these kinds of merge conflicts that occur when somebody goes offline for a little bit and somebody else has edited the same piece of text that they've been editing offline. You have a merge conflict. Do those kinds of issues emerge in the collaboration experience with Descript? 
Yeah, they sure do. And and there's some types of those conflicts that there's not really a good single solution to. And we'll just let the user know that it's happened and save both in their version history and make it easy for them to pull it back. So we've had to work through that same set of issues that the other collaborative editing tools, live collaborative editing tools have had to work through. And is it just enough of an edge case that it very rarely happens and, and causes a you know an annoyance? Yeah, I think that's right. It's like a near-term annoyance. And the main thing, you know, for us is making sure there's never a situation with data loss. And because we have full version history and the way everything and because Descript works offline, we're saving everything to your hard drive before we even try to push it to the cloud. So the chances of anything happening there are very slim. When I think about the business of podcasting, we have five shows per week, we have four ads per show. And I record them all as host-read ads, which is what most of the market wants these days. You want the host to read the ad, so it's sort of like influencer marketing. And one application that people talk about sometimes is like, oh, if you wanted to get dynamically inserted ads where you know you could have this real-time bidding where some kind of advertiser like bids on like let's say i'm i'm a listener i've suddenly tuned into an episode about javascript you know an advertiser bids on that listen in real time with a javascript error monitoring tool ad but i have not recorded that ad so you could have this real-time process where all of a sudden the advertiser has purchased that ad and they dynamically create an ad based off of a voice model that has been trained from my voice. That's a potential application. I don't know if it's something that people will want, but it seems like something that's that's almost an inevitability. Do you have any perspective on that potential application? Not really. I agree with you on that it will be possible, and I agree with you that I'm not sure if it's something people will want. Right. Do you think you as a consumer, thinking like a consumer who has probably consumed a lot of podcasts, would you know the difference? I think we'll reach a point where people will not know a difference. So if you just assume that people won't know a difference and then think about what a world looks like where this is happening and whether it changes the value of these host-read podcasts, I mean, you can't look at that in isolation of all the other ways in which synthetic voice will be appearing in culture and how that will change people's perception of voice. So there's just too many kind of variables in play to even like be able to speculate. Right. For me. Yeah, cuz in that I guess in that world you can have like a ghost entirely ghost written podcast episode. Somebody could totally script an entire episode of me talking to somebody else and like maybe that's something people want. We just have no idea at this point. We're too far from that. I mean, there's probably, you know, visionary people out there that will answer your question more affirmatively, but I certainly don't feel like I have any idea. Mm. In terms of synthetic voice technology, though, like how good is it today? If I tried to write an entire ghostwritten podcast episode, would it sound like me? The use case we've been focused on for now is pickups and editorial corrections, in part just because we think it's more interesting. So something that's augmenting organic audio rather than being a complete substitute for it. If we can allow you to correct a couple of words in something that you've recorded and give you the same kind of 
editorial flexibility that you have when you edit text. That seems like an incredibly useful thing. It's also, I think, the longer a string of text-to-speech is, the more likely you are going to notice a glitch in the matrix. So there are use cases for longer form text-to-speech in its current form. Like it is useful for stuff, and I think we'll we'll start seeing that once once we come out of beta. But I don't think in the next year you're going to be listening to you know audio books of your favorite celebrities synth- synthetic voice or something like that. What's the hardest engineering problem you've encountered building Descript so far? I would have to defer to the engineers <laughs> okay. on that one. I'm thinking about trying to answer and just and then thinking about my engineers listening to me trying to answer that and then just like wanting to punch me. Yeah. Well, and so I'm just <laughs> Let's take a different angle. So, you know, I've listened to a lot of podcast interviews with you and you know, you're one of these people who I think is you serve a pretty valuable touch point of inspiration in the same way that these other founders who have beaten their head against the wall with like product that might not have a perfect market, like, you know, your whole thing with, with the point and then that transitioning into Groupon and then with Detour and that transitioning into Descript, I think there is probably some nugget of wisdom or nuggets of wisdom that you can offer about how to evolve an idea that is not working perfectly into something that is more honed and has a better market. Do you have any lessons that that you can share with the audience? In both cases, I've been to through kind of two sets of companies that had a pivot in them. The first was The Point, which was this collective action platform that pivoted into Groupon. And Groupon was a very narrow application of the broader technology or the, the broader idea, which was this idea of a collective action tipping point, get a critical mass of people to agree to do something, and only once it's achieved does it go into action. Groupon is that applied to group purchasing. So in the early days, Groupon was, you know, you would only get the deal if 20 people joined or something like that. And that was a situation where our backs were up against the wall at risk of losing our funding. And we had to come up with something and we were just kind of frantically experimenting with all the different use cases that we had, we had imagined. With Detour, it was this audio tour platform. And when we started, like from the moment we started thinking about, about Descript, I was immediately thinking of as the potential for a separate business. And we treated it as such internally, where it had its own team Honestly, it's like I probably wouldn't recommend doing something like that in, in a normal startup, especially if it's your first startup. It's like this whole other thing to manage. I don't know. It's like it's this weird combination of being stubbornly persistent about about sticking with your idea, but also keeping your ears open and looking for opportunities, being open to the idea that the th- the thing is not the thing that you thought it was it's this other thing over here but it's it's really a wonderful part of the process is is kind of working through the wreckage of your idea to find some gem that's in there and it's it's often said that the obvious ideas are taken so you kind of have to get yourself into a little bit of a mess and look at what your assets are to have those constraints to to figure something out so, you know, the, the one thing I've done is consistently is just 
recklessly jumped into things <laughs> and, and, and got myself into a mess that I have to work my way out of. So if you're thinking about doing a startup, like just do a startup and, and get started and don't don't overthink it and and maybe and just be open to the idea that maybe things will come out differently than than you expected although not badly that process of incubating descript were you thinking of it like a hedge were you thinking of it like a hail mary were you thinking of it like some combination of the two it sounds like there's almost like you were setting up the company with a sense of cognitive dissonance but you had a sense that that was the only way to actually do this. It was a little bit of a hedge. It was a little bit of, well, we can do both these things. And it was a little bit of just self-indulgent. I'm personally really interested in this, both because I'm interested in audio and, and media production, but also because I just love building tools. And so, yeah, I think it was all those things. You've worked in a recording studio and whenever I see those recording studios, they have all this gear inside of them. Are you a believer that we need analog gear, or do you think everything can be turned into software in the audio production process? The recording studio I worked at was Electrical Audio Studios in Chicago, which is a famously analog recording studio. So everything at the time was done on, on two-inch tape. And I... Personally, it depends on what you're doing, I guess. I, I really appreciate the constraints that that puts on the on the creative process. And I'm a firm believer, like in all aspects of things, that you know making things easier doesn't necessarily make them better. But that's really like about one's creative process. Beyond that, in terms of like the sonic qualities of it, the, the reason I never became a recording engineer, and didn't stick with that is because I just have terrible taste in that sort of thing. And, <laughs> and so I wouldn't be a good person to ask. I, I think, you know, people spend way too much time fixated on, on gear as a way of procrastinating on their actual craft. As a musician, is there a part of you that wants to quit this whole business thing and just write music all the time? Not at all. I'm the, I mean, I'm an amateur musician. I'm not very good. I love to play music, but I don't, I don't really have any desire to write music. How big is the podcast tooling market? We'll find out. There's a lot of podcasts out there and it's, it's growing quickly. It's big enough for us and a bunch of other people and a bunch of investors to be excited about it. You know, we think of ourselves as part of a larger new media space than podcasting specifically. In the new media world, content tends to blur the boundaries between podcasting or audio and text and, and video, you're distributing across all three for any given piece of content. And when you think of it that way, when you think of, how, of the size of video, then it really starts to get quite exciting. Is there a way to make podcasts more social? Well, I don't even know what you mean. There is this common meme around the fact that podcasts can't be shared. Maybe you just don't you don't you don't even like explore the world of podcast marketing at all. You're just more in the podcast tooling space. Like people say that there's a problem being able to share a podcast is the idea because they're all in this fractured RSS ecosystem and you know there's not a one canonical way to listen to a podcast like a YouTube video. Mhm. Mm I'm sure that could be better. Yeah, I don't have that I don't I don't have anything smart to say <laughs> okay. about it. Fair enough. 
Do you have a sense for why the podcast advertising market is so underdeveloped? No. It's very hard to get podcasters to change their workflows. So I watched the Descript commercial that you have, and you have this old guy who looks like somebody with old, dusty podcast recording tools. How do you get somebody like that to change their workflow? I think it's hard to get people to switch from Pro Tools to Audition or one timeline editor to another timeline editor because all of these tools are so mature. They've all aped each other's features. And at this point, if you talk to someone and you ask them what they're using, if they're using Pro Tools or Logic or Audition, it's almost definitely because the reason they're using it is because it's what they learned on because all the tools are equally good. Descript is really the first editing tool since editing tools made the jump to the computer. That's a complete reimagining of the interaction paradigm where you're editing as a document instead of editing purely as a timeline. And, you know, it's one of the changes that is happening because the technology exists for it to happen. You know, like when YouTube came around, it wasn't just that it was a brilliant idea. It's that technology only at that moment had reached a point where such a platform was even achievable. And words are just a better abstraction of narrative audio, narrative media than waveforms. They're more expressive. They're faster and easier to work with. So once people start using it, it's just such an obvious improvement that in terms of speed and simplicity and the fact that you can remain in your editorial brain and not need to continuously switch back into your technical or engineering brain as you're making these kind of waveform edits to your timeline, that those are the reasons that we tend to see people switch. On top of that, you know, podcasting is going through a golden age and most people who are podcasting now are not that crusty old audio engineer. They're print journalists or just whoever that don't know timeline editors from Adam, right? They're, they're, they're new to it and they might be outsourcing their editing if they're doing any editing at all because of the technical complexity and, and learning curve. And Descript is now making editing possible for them when it just simply wasn't within reach within reach before. For people who have not worked in a digital audio workstation or who have not edited a podcast, can you hone in on that distinction between the document-based editing style versus the timeline-based editing style? What are you describing there? Yeah, the, when I say a timeline style, I'm, you're imagining like GarageBand or iMovie where you have on the y-axis, you have tracks of your different media and the x-axis is time. And so you're just seeing your, your tracks are different speakers or music or effects when it gets into video titles or, or B-roll that you might be overlaying on top of your main video track. And then the document is, is just exactly what it sounds like when I say in Descript, you're editing a script, you're editing something that looks like you're working in Google Docs, but when you're editing the, the words, you're also editing the underlying media. When you're thinking about the market size for podcast editing or video editing, is there a specific company or set of products that you benchmark against to know 
or even just to reverse engineer how much you need to charge for this when you're trying to calculate like what is the market how much do i need to charge in order to have like a good business here are there analogs or like i'm just wondering how you're thinking about the market sizing there's a little bit of that but there's a lot of looking at the zeitgeist and just seeing that we're in a world where there's really no difference anymore between the the consumer and the creator and the prosumer everyone is a content creator and the tools that are out there are difficult to use. So if you believe that you can build something that can be a solution for the creators out there, then it's a process of combining existing markets, creating ones that don't exist into into something new. And that's happening all the time with startups that that are creating new spaces. Are there any machine learning applications that you really wish you could have in Descript, but the models are just not quite good enough yet? Don't know yet. There's kind of a backlog of things that we're excited to start exploring, but haven't yet, and we'll see when we get there. Are there any particular business adjacencies that you're considering exploring, like hosting or the recording process itself? Right now, we're focused on building a great editing tool. That's really the main thing. As we get to the to the end of the conversation, could you just give me a, a description for how the management of the company is structured? Like, how do you organize the product teams, the testing process, and just the overall management of the company? It's still a small team, and we're maybe 22, 23 people. I have a, a VP of engineering, and the engineering and AI research teams report into him. And we still don't have any other product managers other than me, although that'll change soon. We have a couple of designers who report into me. The team here is senior, but by comparison to some of the teams I've, I've worked on in the past. And the engineering team is high, has high consumer judgment and high business judgment. And that's why we haven't had the need for dedicated product managers so far. We just have a lot of very creative, high judgment engineers who are able to work directly with design to take, you know, a fairly high level goal and work things out. And I think the team here has really enjoyed that. A lot of the team has been together for, you know, going on five years since the detour days. It's, It's all the same team. And at this point, we're growing, we're, we're hiring now after we did our Series A, but it has a strong core that's really figured out how to work well together. If you weren't building Descript, what company would you be working on? I don't know that I would be doing a company. I, <laughs> I have a couple, you know, kind of random side projects that I'd love to work on at some point, but yeah, I'm not sure. Can you share anything? I just want to know what the next reckless decision is going to be. Oh, you know, it's too self-indulgent. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll share it some other time. Fair enough. Andrew, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 